Hi and welcome to Colour Fit Chat number 21. Today I'm absolutely delighted to have Dr. Carl Langdon Evans on the show talking about energy availability and REDS. Carl is a certified nutrition and strength and conditioning expert who currently works as a postdoctoral researcher and he's head of sports science and SNC support services at Liverpool John Moores University. Carl's postdoc work is focused on ergogenic nutrition layers for combat sports and similarly his PhD work examined the effects of making weight strategies on energy availability and REDS in combat sports. He recently presented some of his PhD work at the COVID-19 conference and the level of scientific rigour combined with the practical application, it absolutely blew my socks off. He presented more work in 30 minutes than I've done all my life in true scout style. Carl is also an accredited strength and conditioning coach with the UKSEA and he's trained a plethora of athletes associated with the Liverpool John Moores Elite Programme. Carl combines his nutritional and SNC knowledge working with a number of professional and Olympic combat sport athletes from the likes of USC, Bellator, Pro Boxing and Taekwondo. Red Zest is a really important topic for anyone involved in performance as it can be absolutely catastrophic for the health and performance of our athletes. It's a brilliant show from a top practitioner and remember if you want to add opinion or ask our questions, tune in tonight at, at colour underscore fit on Twitter from 7pm. I really hope you enjoy the show. So I'm sure most people are familiar with the concept of energy balance, uh, where we examine total energy intake in relation to total energy expenditure. Uh, so total energy intake obviously is inclusive of the food that we ingest, whereas total energy expenditure comprises of a range of different things. First and foremost being rest and metabolic rate. So that's the energy we need if we were to do absolutely nothing else throughout the day. Uh, Diet-induced thermogenesis, so the energy that we actually need to metabolize our food, which comes at a general cost of around about 10% in a, in a mixed meal composition. Non-exercise activity, thermogenesis, so that's the energy that we utilize for everyday tasks, uh, be that simple things like just standing, sitting, or even walking around. Uh, and then finally, exercise energy expenditure, which is obviously what we need to perform specific exercise tasks. So that gives us a value that equates to either a surplus, a deficit or, or balance uh, in the energy available for all of those different energetic processes in tandem. Now where energy availability differs to this is that it's based on a three-part equation of total energy intake, uh, but only minus the exercise energy expenditure component of the total. And then we divide this by fat-free mass. And that represents a value that equates to the energy uh, which is left for the body's primary physiological functions. So all in all, that would give us a good overview of how the energy we have at our disposal can support what the body needs in order to either grow, maintain, or even adapt in metabolic processes to the ever-changing circumstances that we find ourselves in over a specific time period. So I think assessing energy availability can be important for us to understand a number of things, particularly in relation to the various training goals that are obviously very different across sports. Uh, I think firstly, we need to understand the output of the energy availability equation, which is a value expressed as equating to the amount of kilocalories divided by kilograms of fat-free mass per day. Now, typically the research shows that 45 kilocals per kilogram of fat-free mass per day um, equates to energy balance. Whereas anywhere between 45 and 30 kilocals per kilogram of fat-free mass per day is suggested as a tolerable range um, for any, any athlete trying to reduce body mass. If we go below 30 kilocals per kilogram of fat-free mass per day, um, that's classified as low energy availability. 
And it's been suggested that if we do go below that threshold, it can result in, in, in an inadequate amount of uh, energy to support primary physiological function. Now, in terms of what this means for practice, I think a point to note is that ultimately the energy availability value is, is affected by all three of its equated components, but predominantly the energy intake and the, the exercise energy expenditure components, or even the combinations of the two. So where this can be quite useful for the practitioner is that it allows them to be reactive to the changes in both of those factors. So in terms of either increasing or reducing the amount of food that we ingest or the training that we do, in order to support the balance in the energy that we do need for that optimal physiological function and also to, sp to support specific training goals. Um, so measuring energy availability is where the real difficulties in this concept lie, purely because the assessment of the three equating factors uh, is fairly difficult, particularly when you're based in the field. I think when we consider measurements of fat-free mass, we want to try and use the best type of assessment at our disposal. Um, so in a laboratory setting where you know we're considering things like dual X-ray absorptometry or bioelectrical impedance, those would be ideal. Um, but I think we need to consider and understand that without standardisation, they're, they're pretty fraught with inaccuracy. So unless we're able to do that, can be can be pretty redundant. In the field, I suppose your main measurement tool for this is going to be skinfold assessments. And whilst I wouldn't discredit this completely, I think it depends on the the accuracy of how that's measured, uh, the body density, and also the body fat equation. Um, that practitioners use and, and they need to be specific in the population that they're, they're working with in terms of you know, the, those two different factors. But thankfully, uh, there are a number of equations now that are being generated based in you know, specific sport and cohorts and, and around laboratory measures. Um, I think anybody involved in the area will know that you know, energy intake is probably one of the most difficult things to measure, particularly in the field. Uh, because the different assessment methods that we actually use can change behaviours, so food diaries, dietary recalls, even digital photographic food inventories, um, you know, all, all have an effect. In an ideal world, I think you'd really want to either provide the food, uh, therefore knowing the caloric value, or do a weighted food inventory to get the most accurate idea of, of this component that we can. And then exercise energy expenditure is pretty much impossible to measure with any degree of accuracy. Uh, in either a laboratory or a field-based setting. Um, so I think it's all about considering the ranges of inaccuracy that we're willing to accept. Um, Lab-based measures are fairly expensive, pretty impractical in most settings, um, and field-based measures such as heart rate and accelerometry don't really tell the whole picture. So just make sure you consider this when you're coming up with your calculation. So I think this just goes to show that whilst energy availability is a useful concept, it's certainly a very difficult thing to measure. Um, so practitioners do really need to be cautious on how they both assess and diagnose based on this. Yeah, so it's been proposed that the low energy availability threshold of 30 kilocals per kilogram of fat-free mass per day can have a number of negative health and performance consequences. Uh, and this has been coined as relative energy deficiency in sports, or REDS or REDS. Uh, now, this is a concept that's been pretty synonymously accepted. Uh, and whilst I don't personally dis disagree with it, I think researchers and practitioners need to understand that it's based on a lot of cross-sectional data uh, and there's not very many randomised controlled trials, you know, and they're, you know, in, in the area they're pretty few and far between. So my own research has uh, been examining this in combat sports, you typically must go below that low energy availability threshold from anywhere between 6 to 12 weeks uh, in order to make a target weight category. And my own findings have highlighted that low energy availability over that time period doesn't really appear to have many effects on REDS, uh, particularly in the male and female athletes that we tested. There's also a bit of research coming out now highlighting that a thresh, uh, that, that threshold 
uh, may actually be too high for males um, who don't necessarily have such a high reproductive energy cost uh, of, as females. Uh, and then there's even more research showing that this value might be variable uh, across female cohorts. So still a lot of work to be done uh, to get a better overview of this area. Typically, from my experience, I think it either relates to the duration or magnitude of time you spend in low energy availability. Uh, if you're below the threshold marginally, but for an extended period of time, let's say six months, uh, there's evidence to show negative consequences where even in much shorter time, uh, time frame periods, inclusive of only a few days, uh, then if you're way below the threshold, you'll also see an effect. So there's numerous consequences that you, you might actually see. So disturbances on psychological, metabolic, endocrine, immunological, cardiovascular, gastrointestinal and menstrual cycle functions, as well as different performance variables such as strength, power and speed. So I think ultimately practitioners just need to inform themselves by reading as much as they can around the area so that they understand the symptoms even when they actually occur. So I think just to summarise in terms of where the research is heading in both energy availability and, and REDS, um, as, as I've said previously, there's still probably a lot of work to do. I don't particularly think we've got a good understanding yet of the, the nuances between the differences of the effect this has on both males and females. As great as the, the, the threshold values actually are, I think there's still a lot of research to be done to prove conclusively whether or not um, this holds true because I think there's a lot of conflicting evidence out there to, to say that it either does or it doesn't. Um, and then not only that, I think we do need a lot more randomised controlled trials and laboratory-based studies to show the effect, particularly low energy availability might have on symptoms of REDS. REDS certainly exists, um, you know, particularly in, in and around the female athlete triad. I think it's accepted that it has effects on both males and females, so that's, that's certainly not something that's up for debate. But ultimately, what we really, really need to do is do a number of laboratory-based uh, controlled trials where we look at uh, manipulating the energy intake, manipulating the different amounts of exercise energy expenditure uh, in order to modulate those, those different uh, energy availability thresholds and then look at the effect that they, they actually have on a number of health and performance-based parameters. So a big thanks to Carl there for a great show. It's clear that energy balance is a complex topic. Firstly, measuring energy intake and expenditure is fraught with difficulty and inaccuracies, and really only the gold standard lab measurement techniques can be deemed reliable. The complexity continues with how, when, and if negative energy balance is likely to become reds. It appears slightly more prevalent in females and a little bit easier to detect with its effects on menstruation. We know many sports need low body fat levels in order to optimize performance, but the body just doesn't like losing weight. And as an evolutionary survival mechanism, it'll come up with several adaptive strategies to help prevent this. Therefore, it makes intuitive sense to mainly operate around the borders of energy balance. So we don't encounter these severe adaptive mechanisms that can hamper our athletes' health and performance, both short-term, but also long-term as well. Education around health-dense foods and fuel periodization will be key to this aim. More aggressive short-term reductions in energy balance are sometimes required, but should only be done under expert guidance and be closely monitored. So thanks again for tuning in. To listen to the full episode, please subscribe to the Colour Fit podcast or YouTube channel, and any reviews are very much appreciated.